Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host, Angela Whitehorn, is here with me. And we're doing a special episode today, and we're going to be talking to Danny Purvis about his new book called The Marriage Pyramid. And bear with us, because I, I told a couple friends the name of the book and what they thought that it was going to be and what it is, two totally different things. <laughs> like that, What they yeah. thought the pyramid was all about and what it actually is. Is, is very different. So, uh, and well, just before we get started, you were, or I don't know if you still are at all, but you've been a military chaplain for years and years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Colleen, thank you uh, both of you for, for having me on. I, uh, I, uh, tell folks about, uh, about you guys all the time, uh, and constantly pushing them in your direction. You guys are solid theologically. I've, I've gotten to to know you over the uh, over the last year, and and uh, I love what you guys are doing at Theology Gals, and it's an honor for me to uh, to even be talking to you. So thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank first you. Of all. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, I was a Navy chaplain for twenty years, um, and uh, retired in December of twenty sixteen. And the marriage pyramid, which I'm by the way, I don't don't let me forget to ask you. I'm I'm fascinated to think what they thought it was going to be, as opposed to what it really is. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by that uh, by that comment you made. Uh, but yeah, the the marriage pyramid was actually a culmination of of that 20 years. It, it was really something that I began to develop my very first year in the Navy when I I didn't know what to expect. I had a little bit of a military background, but not not as a chaplain. Uh, and so when I first was doing my first assignment in 29 Palms, California, at the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center out there, uh, assigned to a, um, a Marine Corps artillery battalion, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I had no idea that the vast majority of my time in 20, over that 20 years would be counseling people, and I didn't know that the vast majority of that would be marriage uh, counseling. And, and so that was, that was predominantly what I did, probably more than anything else. And so as I became keenly aware of that from the very beginning, um, and we would do uh, premarital um, uh, workshops that, that Marines had to go through before they were allowed to get married and, and things like that, um, I started developing the, the seeds of, of the marriage pyramid, marriage pyramid were sort of planted then. And, and I hesitated and waited until I was done with the Navy before I took all of the stuff that I learned over that time and tried to put it in, in a one relatively accessible, coherent package. You know, I think some people are going to ask this question, and I, and even though I've read it, so I, I know how I would answer it from reading it. I'm curious what you would say. And is this a book that's going to be beneficial just for one spouse or the other to read on their own? Is it something that's best read uh, that a couple reads together? Is it something that's good to use in marriage counseling? What What are the best ways to use the book? But the answer to all those questions is yes. Uh, <laughs> it really is. That's what I was sort of really had in mind when I was when I was starting this, and and even again twenty now twenty two years ago, when this all began, is I wanted something that uh, because you know as well as I do, you you. you you're married, you've been married, you know other people who are married. Sometimes in relationships, you have one person who's a little more interested in making things work than the other. I wish it weren't that way, but it sort of is. So I wanted it to be accessible if one person in the uh, in the relationship wanted to, uh, to, to read it. I wanted it to be accessible and helpful if they wanted to read it together as a couple. And I especially wanted it to be helpful uh, and usable for folks who were uh, engaged and in, in considering getting married. So I really did. It's, it's really difficult kind of writing for all of those audiences. So I try to make it as, gen again, general, you're going to hear me use the word accessible over and over again, but as general 
and as helpful and as accessible as it could be from all different standpoints. So that was that was sort of the idea behind it. Yeah, and I I can actually say having read it myself, my husband didn't read it, it with me. Um, when I when I read it, you know, I benefited a lot. And then, as often is the case when my husband's working a lot, and this time of year he's definitely working a lot, is mm-hmm. that I will read him parts or <laughs> discuss different things different things with him. But I think it definitely is the sort of thing that you could read it. You know, you could read a section, not, you wouldn't even have to do a whole chapter. Some of the chapters are pretty long, but you could Mm -hmm. read a section every night and just discuss it. It, But I think that if, you know, some of our gal uh, listeners that maybe their husbands don't like to read that much and they are interested in it, they could pick it up and, and benefit from reading it on their own also. And I'm sure, I know it's the things that you used in marriage counseling. So let's go ahead and jump in. What, what is it about? Because now people are going to wonder, okay, now what is this about? Well, well, can I, can I ask you to tell me what your friend thought it was going to be first before I answer that question? I'm really, uh, I, I can't get know, that out of my head. I, that's, that's I, I, I'm not actually a hundred percent sure because I had a couple conversations about it and I would say, they would be like, oh, I don't know about that title. And I would say mm. what it was about. And they'd go, oh, that's not what I thought it was going to be at all. <laughs> yeah. so I'm not that's sure. Right. Yeah, we, have, we have quite a few listeners who have come out of sort of a fundamentalist um, uh, IFB kind of background sure. and maybe have been connected to some of the um, patriarchy, the Christian patriarchy movement. Oh, and so, okay. um, you know, there's a few famous graphics that kind of roll around in that world that create a very hierarchical authoritarian view of marriage. And so, wow, I didn't know that. Now I want to change the the terminology marriage pyramid. I think in some, as some, for some folks with that background is instantly brings that sort of thing to mind. So that uh, I would have never dreamed of that. I, I, (laughs) I, I would not have ever thought that somebody would have thought that, but actually when you explain it to me, it, it sort of makes a certain amount of sense. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you so know what? For our listeners, <laughs> now they know. It's not yes. about that. It's oh, not goodness, about no. authoritarian hierarchies. So. No, no, not in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, it was. it's based on uh, an idea that is completely unrelated to to uh, the Christianity as a whole and to marriages uh, in uh, in specific. Uh, but I actually got the idea of the structure of it, of how I wanted to format it and how I wanted to uh, to explain it uh, from actually uh, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And if you're familiar with Dr. Maslow's work, um, he, uh, he, he uses the idea of a pyramid, meaning that if you look at the levels on the bottom of the pyramid, they have to be there in order to be able to reach the top of the pyramid. And that's the only reason I use that, uh, I use that terminology. Mm. I was always fascinated by his, his approach to that. So if you're, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with his work at all, at the top of the pyramid is, uh, is self-actualization, but at the bottom, it's it's basic food and safety, it's basic needs. And so, what he was what he was saying is, as as you as you develop socially and psychologically, and and whatever ways he 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 uses whatever terminology he uses, that there's no way you're going to be able to get to the second level unless the unless the first level is there and continuously there. And I really love the idea because he was the, he made sure people understood that this wasn't a goal to go step by step and get to the top and, and just stay there, but that there are things that happen in our lives that move us up and down on mm. the pyramid all the time. And that was really a big thing for me uh, in trying to make sure I communicated to that, that this is not a 10-step guide or a five-step guide or a four-step guide to a better marriage because I don't think there are steps out there that make you a better marriage. I think marriages are too different. 
I think people are too individually different. So I didn't want to try to try to convince somebody that if you read this book and follow these five steps, six steps, seven steps, however many that there might be, that you'll go through these. And at the end of it, you're going to come out with a great marriage. I just, it's really more of a barometer than anything else. It's more of a, where am I now with this? And, and these different levels uh, sort of relate to that. And so we can, even in our marriage at any given time, be at the top of that pyramid. And we, we are one really bad conversation with our spouse to dropping down to the, to the, to the next to the bottom one. I mean, it can, it, can, it can happen just that quickly. So as I would see that in people's lives and I would see that in married couples' lives, I was trying to think, what can I do? How can I be able to communicate the reality that this is not a, uh, you know, marriage is not a, a, a three, four, five, six step process, but it is a, it is a relationship that depending on the things that are going on and depending on our understanding of the things that are going on is what leads us to where we are in our marriage. And if we're not aware of that, then we can think we're in one spot when we're really not. And, and we have a tendency to wonder why aren't expectations being met at this level um, well, it's because the expectations haven't met to the level below that. And, and this, mm. there's no way you're going to be able to get that one unless you have the first one done. So that was sort of the idea behind it when I, when I first started developing it. Yeah. And I wanted to say, I think I neglected to say this in the beginning, is that you've been married, what, 30 years now? It'll be 30 years in June. Yeah. Okay. So you, it's not, I've, there's sometimes those situations where somebody who doesn't have kids comes out and, and tells you all the tips for being a good parent and raising yes adjusted kids and or they have a six-month-old baby or something so this isn't you just saying well I just counseled some people and now I'm the expert but you you have been married for uh just about 30 years and the things we're going to talk about right now are some of the things that you have um put on that pyramid so I'll I'll be quiet now and let Angela talk (laughs) (laughs) you're doing great yeah exactly um well you know I know you talk about love in your book um, and we know that there are just so many misunderstandings of what love actually is. So give us a good definition of love. I will tell you, and please don't take this the wrong way. I will tell you that was probably the most fun part of the book to, uh, to write uh, because I got, I got to suck all the fun out of love. That was, that was so much fun being (laughs) able to do that. And, and I actually, I'm kidding. That's not what I wanted to do or what I tried to do. Uh, But I have, you know, it could be, it could be misconstrued as, as doing that. Um, One of the things that I actually had gone back over the years, I've actually switched around. There were times I didn't put love as the bottom when I had it up one, I had something else at the bottom and I kept going back to that because I, I, one of the things that I have been burdened with, I think we all have, have, have seen this and experienced this is that we, as, especially as believers, we have done at times, depending on what we're talking about and what we're engaging in, we've done a really bad job at allowing the world to define terms for us. And so we let that part of the world kind of sneak into our verbiage, into our thinking, into our worldview. And so my point in, in starting off with love and, and making sure we had to understand that before we ever moved on to any other part of the, uh, of the pyramid was to understand what love really means as opposed to what the culture tells us that it means, because those are two drastically important things. But the reality is um, the culture is what the culture is telling us is not consistent with scripture. We, we know that, but yet we will still buy into it. We will still allow certain aspects of, of what the world tells us about love and probably the, the uh, sneak in. And probably the biggest one is that this whole idea of, of love being expressed as a feeling and almost exclusively as a feeling that is not true that the minute we start thinking 
that love is almost exclusively a feeling, then that's the part, that's the beginning of the, of the erosion of the marriage relationship. I, I believe that with all my heart. If we don't get that part right, you can forget about the rest of the parts of the pyramid. It's never going, you're never even going to sniff that. If we don't understand exactly what love is from the, from the creator of love, from the definer of love, and, 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 and from the being God who tells us that not only did he create it, not only did he define it, he actually is it. Um, if we don't understand that, then we're going to miss everything else. I, I can't tell you how many times I would sit in uh, counseling session after counseling session after counseling session. And I, it was really fascinating for me because even though I was in the Navy for 20 years, and I aged 20 years during that time period. The group of people I talked to never really aged. It's really fascinating. I talked to 18 to 22-year-olds for 20 years. Now, the people changed and they aged, but the age group never changed. That was predominantly who I dealt with. Now, I did deal with a lot of you know, more, more mature marriages that were having more significant problems. But one of the things that I would come to see and the thing that would irritate me to no end when I was talking to them is that they would be on the verge of divorce and I would listen to them and not hear one single reason why they should be getting divorced. There was nothing in anything that they were saying that to me could have led me to the fact of thinking that their relationship was doomed, that they should have been talking about, about, uh, about getting divorced. And one of the things that would inevitably come up is this idea that I fell out of love. I, I, I just, I can't tell you how much I, that phraseology irritates me. And we have actually borrowed that from the world. We have incorporated that from the world. The world will tell us you'll fall in love, almost like it wasn't your fault, <laughs> almost like you were walking along, minding your own business, and much like you would fall into a hole, which I think is the example I used in the book, much like you would fall into a hole, you would fall in love. Well, here's the problem with looking at it from that standpoint. If you can fall into love like that and it's not really your fault and you didn't really do anything to, to, to earn that or to warrant that, then you can just as easily fall out of love. And it's not your fault. Hey, just like it wasn't my fault when I fell in love. Hey, no harm, no foul. Now I'm not in love anymore because I don't have the feelings associated with it. So I thought it was extremely important that we start off by understanding exactly what was meant by love, that are there feelings attached to love? Yes, glorious, wonderful, amazing feelings. But are those feelings the arbiter of the reality of love? They are not. They are a part of it, but they don't, they're not an arbiter of the reality or the veracity of that claim. So in order to be able to understand where we need to get to in our marriage, we have to really and truly understand what do we mean by love in the first place? And is it possible to love, to really love, to experience the kind of love that, uh, that God wants to experience outside uh, of him? And of course, I, we all know the answer to that question is no, it's not. So I spend a lot of time in that first chapter making sure people understand that because if you don't get that, you're not going to get anything else. Can you give us then, you know, we just talked about for a minute um, what love is not and borrowing those bad definitions um, from the culture. What what would you steer us more towards um, as a good definition of love? I think the, the only good definition of love that we can possibly come up with has to be rooted in the very simple three words, just three simple words in one passage in 1 John that says, God is love. And therefore, if we are not rooted in him, if we are not believers, if we have not been redeemed by him, how can we, ta- if God, I love the terminology. It doesn't say God created love. It said God is love. And if we are not tapping into that reservoir, if we do not know God in that intimate relationship, there is no way we can draw from that well 
of love. We can't. It's impossible. The world can come up with a lot of different things that sort of look like it maybe. If you turn your head to the side and you squint your eyes real hard, but they're all based on feelings. Love is a decision. I don't know if you guys listened to uh, Ravi Zacharias, but, but uh, I was absolutely fascinated by, by the story that he would tell about his brother who, you know, if you, if you know anything about the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, he's from India originally, and his family's still, I think he has still a lot, has yeah, a lot my, of family. My there. husband's a big, big fan of his. Oh, absolutely. I recommend him to, to everybody. But one of the things he does, he, one of the stories he tells is about his brother who um, wants to get married. And so he wants to do it the old fashioned way in India and have an arranged marriage. So he actually contacted his parents in, uh, in India and basically said, find me a wife. And the first time they met, uh, from my understanding, according to the story, was right before the wedding. Now they, they traded pictures with each other, they talked to each other, but the first time they met face to face was right before the wedding. And so Ravi Zacharias, who I think had probably been a little more thoroughly westernized than, than, than maybe his brother, and I may be speaking out of turn on that, but it kind of seemed that way. He called him and asked him, and he said, what happens if you don't love her? Which I think is a fascinating question and a good legitimate question. What happens if you don't love her? And then his brother said to him, love is as much an act of the will as it is an emotion of the heart. And I've never forgotten that, that, that fact that I am not going, if, if, if love is a feeling, then my wife better, she, she, she better make sure I have those feelings all the time. <laughs> because if I don't, and it's her fault then all of a sudden that love begins to wane. But when my love is rooted in Christ, who loved us whether we deserved it or not, then that's the example that I use with, with our spouse. I mean, we, we, we argue with our spouses. We get sometimes heated arguments with our spouses. We disagree. When those things happen, when we are at our worst, if everybody who's listening to this who's married can think of the absolute worst moment they have ever had with their spouse, I guarantee you the feeling of love doesn't come anywhere near to the, the surface of that conversation. Nobody's feeling love at that moment. But when you are rooted in the love that God has given us by virtue of being his children, then you can say, I love that person, whether at this moment they deserve it or not, because that's the example that was given for us. So the love is not based, my love for my wife then is not based on her performance. It's not based on her ability to make me feel good or to, to, to build me up, which she does all of those things. But nobody, look, nobody. Nobody does that forever, right? Nobody does that all the time. So when she's at her worst or when I'm at our worst, or I'm at my worst, we decide to love her. The only way we can access that kind of love is in Christ. There is no other way around it. You, you know that story that you told when I was about college age, I had a friend that went to church with me and we had like our little college group and I knew him for about a year and I said to him, and he was from India. And But he lived in the United States probably 15 years at that point. He moved to the United States when he was quite young. And I said, how come you never date? Like, do you want to date? <laughs> I'm asking him. And he said, oh, I have an arranged marriage. Mm. And, and I now at that point, I was 19 and just – that just seemed so awful and everything. And his parents were good Christian people and they had a arranged marriage and he would be marrying a, a Christian girl. And that's just what they did. And mm -hmm. I said, but what, it was very similar conversation, but what if you don't have those emotions, you know, and it was very similar to the, to the story that you just told, but it, you know, I think that love this topic on love specifically is so important. I I know someone who left her husband and said, I just wasn't in love with him anymore. Mm. And I think, I wonder if you were to just ask people why they got divorced, how many of them would say they just weren't in love anymore. So I think it's important to, to talk about why love, biblical love, not the worldly love, is so important 
in our marriages. Yeah, because it is not feelings based. Because our feelings right. change with the wind. They do. And look, I'm not anti feeling. All right. I love emotions are great. They were put there by God. Uh, and, and so they, and they serve a purpose. So, so I'm all over that. But you can't, again, as I said earlier, you can't use them as arbiters of reality all the time because they're not. They're not infallible in any way, shape, or form. And so what happens is when we, when we, believe, the, uh, when we believe the stories that we see on TV shows or movies or whatever that show the kind of very bubbly, emotion-filled, you know, running into each other's arms in slow motion stuff, which is all cool. I don't have a problem with it. But when that is listed as this is how I know that I'm in love, um, it, 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 that's a problem. <laughs> that is a significant problem because what happens when you don't feel those feelings? And that's why they can then come around and say, well, I just fell out of love or I'm not in love with that person anymore. Uh, and again, because they didn't ask to fall in love, they didn't choose to fall in love. It's really a way for us to be able to get out of this, to do something and feel better about doing it, which is what the essence of sin is anyway. Not just doing the things wrong or the opposite that God wants us to do, but find some way to rationalize them. And so when you fall into love, it wasn't your fault. When you fall out of love, it's not really your fault. I mean, it's bad, it's, you know, but we'll get past it. But it's not really anybody's fault. I remember, and I think if I'm remembering right, it's been a while since I looked at it, I think I recount this story in, uh, in the marriage pyramid but this was especially uh, important to me when we were watching the TV show Lost. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, uh, that old TV show. Um, but I was a latecomer to that show. I, it had been off the air for a long time before I got involved in it. And it, it's a pretty interesting show. But there is one particular subplot that runs through the show that is leading up to a, uh, a, um, a conflict and, and, uh, and, and to a climax there later, a little bit later on where a woman who's is in the in the uh, in the show's mother actually turned her in for um, arranging the death of the guy who was being physically abusive to her mother so this guy was a really bad guy physically and emotionally abusing his mother she arranges it to make it look like an accident and probably would have gotten away with it she makes the mistake of telling her mom and her mom rats her out to the police and the police end up coming after and chasing her. And so she struggles with this whole, why, you know, why did you, why did you turn me in? He was beating you. He was hateful. He was mean. He was all of those other things. And when they finally have that conversation, she says, you can't help who you love. And now I was sitting on the couch next to my daughter who was probably about, I don't know, maybe 16 or 15 at the time. And I won't do this because I don't want to blow your eardrums out. But I was sitting there next to her. I looked right at her as soon as that person said that on the, on the screen. And I yelled out to the top of my lungs, no, so loud that it scared her. She jumped back and like, what? No, what? And I said, no, that is not what she just said is not true. It's not that you can't help who you love. Love is a choice. It's a decision. And the only way it can be a decision if we're rooted in the ultimate love giver in the first place, it cannot happen in the other way. And that's why I spent so much time and, and so much detail, I think detail in that first chapter, trying to make sure people understand that. Because if you don't have the right understanding of that, not only is your marriage going to suffer, but all the rest of the stuff that we're going to talk about in the book doesn't mean anything. Right. So, I mean, talking about how important it is to get our definition and understanding of love correct, what role does that correct definition of love that we have, how does that play out in the marriage relationship? Well, I think it's foundational. And that's why, even though there have been different iterations of this over the years, matter of fact, at one time I didn't use a pyramid, I used another shape, and I always kept going back to the pyramid. But there are other iterations, I had moved it away from the foundational issue, and I kept moving it back for a reason. And then finally, I came to the conclusion, this has, this has to be understood 
uh, correctly in light of being able to have the right kind of marriage or to have the marriage that God wants you to have. This is, I am, one of the things that I was able to see when I saw how flippantly marriage was treated by so many different people over 20 years, the one thing that I kept taking away from it was an even better understanding of just what an amazing, amazing institution this is. It predates the church. It's the first institution God ever created. He wants us. That is one of the, I mean, when, when he, it's interesting when you go back to Genesis and it says, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. If you look at the passages surrounding that, he wasn't really alone. He had a lot of animals around him. He named all of them, but that wasn't enough. He didn't, wasn't, so he wasn't literally alone. He was spiritually, and from a a completion standpoint, a whole standpoint, he was alone in that sense. God could have created any number of things to fill that void, but he created another human being, a wife, as being the only one who would be able to do that. And so when you look at that, at that, uh, at that example that we have and the love that God is showing us by giving us this relationship in the first place. One of the, one of the things that has broken my heart over the years is this under, misunderstanding about what love is. And then we just so flippantly walk away from it because we say, um, you, you know, I don't love this person anymore. And, and it, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It was very difficult to kind of get used to that. I don't think I ever really did. So, when we talk about the role that love plays in the marriage relationship, so couples that are doing a good job at it at that foundational level of the pyramid, what does it look like? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think, again, in some cases, and I, and I hope you saw this from the, from the book, and it's actually the, the uh, intent that I was going for, and, and, and maybe even put it in the introduction if I can remember, um, a lot of these things are going to look different to different people because people are different. I have a couple in mind right now. Mm-hmm. They have been married for 20-something years, probably close, pushing, pushing 30, pushing close, because they, they got married not too long after, after Kimberly and I did. And every single time that we have spent time around them, the husband and wife who love each other deeply, kids, the whole nine yards, have a very successful, however you define that, successful marriage, um, they bicker all the time. Drives me insane. It's just, it's just, it's not mean. It's not putting anybody down. It's just kind of, it doesn't, that would drive me crazy. I, if, if Kimberly <laughs> and I were doing that, it would drive me crazy. It just seems to work for them. <laughs> they seem to be okay with it. And, and so what something looks like in one person is not going to look the same in others. But in general, I think what it's going to look like is more than anything else is loving that person, knowing that you stating claiming, accepting that you love that person when they are acting the most unlovable they can possibly act. I think when we are able to be able to understand and realize that I love that person, no matter how frustrated I am at this moment, no matter how, you know, how angry I am at this moment, then that's when, that's when I think it's, it's beginning to show that this is the kind of love we're talking about. I know that doesn't completely answer your question, but it, it, it kind of gives you an idea about what, what, you, what you need to be looking So for. one of the things you talk about is safety. And of course, when I got to that chapter, I'm thinking, okay, where's he going with this? Yes. <laughs> so go yes, talk about that a little. Oh, that's my favorite part. It, it, is, uh, it is the one, I, I, uh, I don't know if I shared this with you before, but one of the things that, uh, that was part of, um, of doing what I did for 20 years as a Navy chaplain is I would do marriage retreats from time to time. In, in the Navy, we have this program called Credo, um, and it's a retreat program. It's a lot of different kinds of retreats, but probably the most popular one is what's referred to as the marriage enrichment retreat. For the last year and a half that I was in the Navy, I was a Credo chaplain, and all I did was marriage retreats. 
that was pretty cool gig. Uh, I really enjoyed that uh, for the for for a full eighteen or nineteen months. All I did almost every single weekend was take married couples, sometimes young, sometimes not so young, together we get them in a hotel and we would cover a variety of things. The marriage pyramid was always the last thing I covered on Saturday before we, we took off for date night. And of the marriage pyramid, the part on safety is the one that always always kept, caught people's attention. That was the part that people would come up to me and say, you know, I never, I never thought of it that way before because the, uh, the, the, the reality of, of, Physical safety, that's a given for us, right? I think I even, I think I even say in the book, and I know I say this in the, uh, in the marriage seminars that we even do today that are, that are based somewhat on the marriage pyramid. Uh, one of the things that I say that if I have to convince somebody that physically abusing your spouse is a bad thing and is harmful for your marriage, we, we got bigger problems than I even possibly could dream of. And so I, I kind of, it's kind of a given for me that when we talk about safety, that physical safety, yes, that's, that's what most people seem to think that that passage is going to, or that, that particular chapter is going to mean is talking about physical safety. And I do address that, but I don't spend a preponderance amount of time on there because again, I, I don't think we have to have, you know, 40 pages from me convincing somebody you shouldn't beat up on your wife or your husband. Um, and so what I began to see more than anything else, the one that this was the sneakiest part, this was the, the phrase that I use a lot of time is the thing behind the thing is, is that, um, there were elements of safety in the relationship that were being um, that were being infringed upon, and the people that were engaging with it, the couples that were engaging with that, had no idea what was going on. It, I, to be honest with you, it took me a while to be able to quantify this in a way that I wanted to, and to understand it in a way that I thought would be helpful. And so, what I mean by safety is this, and and this is the this is the statement I usually start out with, and this is one that catches everybody's attention. If when you love someone, when you choose to love someone and going back and connecting with the, with the first level, when you choose to love someone, you become extremely vulnerable to them. As you mentioned before, one of the things I didn't tell you, yes, we have been married for almost 30 years, but we've actually known each other, Kimberly and I, since we were six years old. So we have known each other a very, very long time. Uh, and matter of fact, I tell people I was born married, but in a good sense. I mean, we that's were, similar I, to Angela. She's known her. I've known my husband since I was six. Is that right? You're yes. the only other person I've ever met who's yeah. uh, who, can, who can trace their uh, their their spouse back that far. I rarely meet another person with <laughs> who, yeah. who can uh, hang with us on that. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, if you if you engaged in a bar bet, you'd probably win that bar bet every time, right? You know, uh-huh, you're never uh-huh. going to find anybody who can uh, <laughs> who can say that. But yeah, we actually have our we ha- I have a right right now sitting on our mantle a uh, uh, my first grade class picture, and Kimberly is standing two people down from me. Uh, and so, you know, we, if I can't remember there being a time in my life where she wasn't some sort of part of it. Um, and, uh, so that's a really neat thing. We've known each other for a very long time. Obviously we've been married for a very long time, but if I choose to love someone like I love my wife, that makes me extremely vulnerable to them, right? I think we can probably all agree with that. When you agreed to share your body with someone, your hopes and your dreams and your thoughts and your fears, and your shortcomings and your failures, all of those things that the other person knows, you become extremely vulnerable to that, to that person. And that becomes an extremely vulnerable relationship. And what I tell people at that point is that, at, and I say this unequivocally and, and without even a moment's hesitation, that my wife, potentially my wife, is the single most dangerous person to me in the world. Because she is the person that could hurt me the most in the world. And by definition, the person that could hurt you most in the world has to be the most dangerous person in the world to you. 
She knows what my weaknesses are. She knows what my failures are. She knows, she knows what I'm afraid of. She knows where the bodies are buried, figuratively, by the way. She knows, what, she knows all of these things about me because I have shared them with her. We have gone through these things together. She could hurt me worse than any other human being on the planet if she wanted to. So that makes her potentially the most dangerous person in the world to me. If we don't understand that about our spouse, if we don't understand the nature of that relationship, then we are going to have a hard time getting past this part of the, of, the, of the relationship, this part of the pyramid, for lack of a better term. And we, it's so subtle. It's just, it's just so subtle because the worst thing my wife could do to me is not harm me physically, is, 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 is not to do any number of things. The worst thing she could do to me is to end our relationship. That would devastate me if she ended our relationship. So the, mo- the potentially the most dangerous person in the world to me, the most dangerous thing she could do to me is to end our relationship. I'm trusting that she won't. But here's the thing. Here's what ends up happening. We began a lot of times when we start engaging in discussions that turn not so friendly, and we begin to have argue. And I don't mean we as in me and Kimberly. I'm talking about we in the in the larger sense. But when when we when we have that uh, when we have that um, inevitable fight uh, or inevitable disagreement, maybe prolonged disagreement, maybe something that we'll never, when it's all said and done, we'll never completely 100% agree on, which is okay too. And somebody starts using terms like, I don't know how much longer I can take it. Uh, I don't know how much, how much longer we can keep going on like this. I don't know how much more I can stand or outright threatens divorce. Then something really interesting begins to happen. The person who at first was theoretically the most dangerous person in the world to you has now become the most dangerous person in the world to you. So when I talk about safety, I'm talking about emotional safety more than anything else, a safety rooted in the love that we just talked about beforehand. And so when I have, when I'm in a if I'm in a situation where my wife threatens the safety of the relationship, then like I said, she goes from being potentially the most dangerous person in the world to me to actually becoming the most dangerous person in the world to me. And as a result, since, our, since every single one of us are hardwired to want to feel safe when we're feeling unsafe, and that means physically or emotionally, I'm going to do whatever it takes to feel safe. And if I have to do it at her expense, then I will. And I would see this over and over and over again. It was one of the most fascinating things that I had ever seen. And I, and I would see it erode more marriages than I even cared to think about. Um, you're talking about threatening to end the relationship as, yes. um, as a thing that hurts safety. Is that the only thing? Are there other kinds of things that, that hurt emotional safety? I, I, think, I think anything that threatens the relationship, whether it's an act or, or verbiage. And I, and I, and I think that the sky's the limit on that to a certain extent. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot. One of the things that I would see more than anything else, and, and I would, I always got a reaction no matter where or when I did these marriage retreats, I would always get this reaction. And I would tell the couples that were sitting there and I, and I would tell them, I'm going to ask you a question, but I do not want you to raise your hand. I don't want anybody in this room to raise their hand. And the question would be rooted in, in, in that whole idea of safety and you know, whether or not um, you know, somebody feels safe about what's going on in their relationship. And it's, I would ask them, have you ever, have you ever threatened, openly threatened to end the relationship? Have you ever threatened divorce? 
And then when I told them, like I said, I would tell you that, that I, I would say not, don't raise your hand because it's nobody else's business. I just want you to think about this. And then I would beg them to, to please not do that anymore. And, and, and then go and explain to them this whole idea about safety. Because what happens is, imagine if I'm on a boat, right? I'm a Navy guy, so I'm going to use a boat analogy. So imagine if I'm on a boat and I can't swim and I get tossed over the side and there's a, there's a life ring within arm's reach of me. Well, I'm not, even though I can't swim, I, I'm not going to have to think about whether or not I reach out for that, for that life ring, right? I, I'm going to splash, crawl, scream, do whatever I can to make sure I get to that. I don't have, it's not like I'm going to land in the water and start, you know, pondering my decisions. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm here in the water. Uh, it's getting a little deep. I'm going to be breathing in some here. Maybe I should reach over. We don't think like that. It, it's, it's, a, it's a natural instinct for us that the moment we feel unsafe is to grasp at whatever it is that makes us feel safe. That's the, exactly the same thing that happens in marriages that are threatened with the, um, uh, with the, uh, with, with the termination or the, the ruination of a relationship is that if, why would I want to be close to that person? That person is now the most dangerous person in the world to me. So I'm going to distance myself from that person. I'm going to emotionally, and I would see this played out over and over and over again. I would have spouses and I was, look, I give one example of a couple that I was on her side. She was a thousand percent right. This guy that she was married to, I wouldn't want to be married to him. He was not a great husband, not by any stretch of the imagination, not a bad guy, just not a good husband. But she always would tell me, well, you know, he would, he would come in and talk to me. He'd be, he'd be in tears. You know, she's, you know, she's threatened to divorce me, to leave the kids. I don't know what I'm going to do. Until the one day he came in and he wasn't crying anymore. And he said, well, I don't know. She's, she said she's going to th- uh, leave me and, and, and take the kids. I guess there's nothing I can do about that. See, he had begun that process of distancing. The thing that was really hurting him before, he knew he could not let continue to hurt him. So he had to begin to emotionally distance himself from the very person he wanted to stay married to. And that was always the saddest part to it. That was a way long way to answer your question. But yeah, I think there are tons of things out there that we can do that even if we don't verbally threaten the end of the relationship, we can certainly do things, say things, um, insinuate things that are going to come to the point where the relationship could end up being terminated or as, as, if, even if not terminated, it not, not, not worth being in, not happy, not engaged, not, you know, just married for the sake of being married. And, and anytime that emotional safety is threatened, then that's what you're going to have. And to me, that was one of the most interesting parts of the book. And one of the parts I had most fun writing, not fun because of what it was happening, but fun because hopefully I was revealing something to people in a way that they'd be able to look at in a way they've never looked at it before. One of the things, um, you know, I think even if it's not, and you, a lot, I should tell our listeners, you give lots of of examples in the book and a lot of practical, you know, examples. And you even talk about your own marriage a lot. Talk about your wife in in great ways, not, you know, and then my wife did this or anything like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. If I did that, I would be on the bad side all the time. I'm the one that's always coming. Right. And well, and I, one thing I've thought about a lot in marriage, I've been married almost, it'll be 24 years this year, is that there is a sense where we should protect one another, you know, Mm. in in what you're talking about. So my husband and I have talked about this, that that protecting one another is protecting one another's emotions, protecting one another's feelings. And, you know, we've done a lot of counseling of young couples and stuff too. So we've seen kind of some similar paths that people take. And so when one spouse says something hurtful, it's like the other one's got to one up him. Yes, exactly. Now you just hurt me. Now I, I'm going to hurt you more. That's exactly right. And you yeah. just hurt me. And it's just a downward spiral and we're not protecting one another. And it's, it can be very difficult for a couple once that starts. 
Yeah. Well, and, and, and if it's, if the, if the comment is bad enough, then it really calls into question the first layer of the, of the level of the pyramid, right? Does, does that person really love me? And if they did, why, why are they talking like this? So again, a lot, I would say probably of all the couples that I did, and I know I'm probably going out on a limb a little bit on, on this one here, and, and I'm, I'm freely admitting up front that my percentages could be wrong. Uh, but just based just from from a face validity standpoint of all the couples that that uh, that I have, have counseled over the years, I would say the vast majority of them could not get past this part. There was always something that somebody was doing or saying that was threatening the safety of the relationship. And so the only thing they had to hold on to was love. And then even that starts to be questioned after a certain amount of time. And so it's it's just it's, I, I just saw it. it almost never hardly anybody ever got past that second level. And that was that was really Kind of, it was interesting and, and, to be honest with you, a little depressing. Do you think that has anything to do with the ages that that uh, you were talking to? The reason I ask that, and obviously, I, I'm so blessed to be married to, I'm pretty sure, the most kind, gracious man out there. <laughs> and he makes everything very easy because he, I, if somebody says something hurtful, it's I'm the one that does it, not him. Hmm. And he's just, he's just an amazing man. But you know, I was thinking even in some of the parts in the book that we early in marriage, we would have some of those times, maybe say hurtful things, but it's just not something that we really entertain. But I'm wondering when you were working with younger couples, I'm kind of just wondering if younger couples tend towards that a little bit more. I mean, obviously couples that have been married for a long time can do it too. I know couples that do it, that have been married as long as, as we are. In fact, we, my husband and I have just been devastated we've had a few of our friends get divorced that have been mm. married over 20 years. Wow. I mean, and somebody actually, one of my family members recently got ma- that I grew up very close with and he, he got married a few months after and he and his wife got married a few months after us. So obviously these things happen, but I'm just wondering if there would be a difference earlier in marriage than a couple that had worked through things. I, I absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I actually address that. I think there's so many things that I've done in these, uh, in these seminars that I always I, I wanted to make sure I put in the book, but it's, it's been a little while since I've actually gone back through and read through it. I think I put this in there. Uh, but one of the things that uh, one of the fatal, fatal, uh, and, and I, I'm not trying to use hyperbole here because it, it's fatal to marriages a lot of times. One of the fatal mistakes that these younger couples, these 18 to 22 years, three, 24, 25, you know, up to, up to around maybe 30, one of the fatal mistakes that they make is they think that they're going to have a 30 year marriage in year five. And, and, and that's, they, they, they think that just by, by simple, by virtue of being married, we should just have a, you know, a good marriage. Cause we, nobody gets any training in this. I used to use that example all the time in the Marine Corps. I would, I would ask those guys in the Navy, in the Marine Corps, when it, whoever I happened to be serving with at the time, I would ask the guy and say, look, how long are you, you know, are you going to be in the Navy? Well, probably around 20 years. Okay. In that 20 years, will you ever stop training? And they would always say, well, no, we're always going to start training. I said, how long are you supposed to be married for? And they said, well, you're supposed to be married for life. And I said, how much training do you get for that? <laughs> so it was always to make a point that we don't do that. We just sort of think that the wedding is the marriage and that we just kind of do, a, you know, unless somebody doesn't beat you up, uh, cheat on you, or, or get addicted to drugs and alcohol, what I call refer to as the big three. As long as we avoid those, then we just sort of do a good marriage. And I always tell them, I say, and I always tell those guys on the, uh, in the uh, retreats, I would say, look, it, you know how long it takes to have a 25 year marriage? 
well, generally around 25 years, give or take. Uh, and so they have this they have this unrealistic expectation that the marriage that they think or that they see maybe their parents have or they see other people have, they have the expectation that when they see that, that's the way it's supposed to be for them now, and it's not. And so I think that definitely comes with age. Absolutely it comes. You know, you talk about conflict in your book. Um, tell us some of the mistakes couples make when conflict arises and how can we be- deal with conflict in a more healthy way. I, I am, I'm a real big fan. One of the, I, I used it earlier. I use this, this terminology all the time about the thing behind the thing. Um, uh, when we are dealing with issues, we actually, a lot of time thinks we think we're dealing with the thing. Um, and, and we are to a certain extent, but what we need to be focused on is not that, but the thing, what I refer to as the thing behind the thing, what is it that's driving this thing in the first place? And, and I'll try to clarify that a little bit. Um, so when, um, so when we use, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of pointing out people using what I refer to as catastrophic statements, okay? Now, that may be a little bit of hyperbole because we think of catastrophe as the worst thing that can possibly happen, but maybe you'll get my point here as I, as I go through. But I call them catastrophic statements. And we are, every single one of us who has ever been married or ever will be married is guilty of this. So this is not something that only a few people have done or a few people will do. Um, and a catastrophic statement, I, don't, I, I can't give you all of them, but I can give you two examples that when you say them, they're guaranteed to be catastrophic because no matter what comes after those statements, it's guaranteed to be a lie, okay? And the two statements are this, you always and you never, okay? When you say those two phrases <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, it doesn't matter what comes after those two words. It's guaranteed to be a lie. It's guaranteed not to be true. And so it's going to come across as an attack. I think the example I used in the book and the one I use in the, uh, in the marriage uh, retreat all the time is, uh, is the example of, of uh, me and my wife, okay? Uh, you're right. I, I, could, I couldn't point out really too many bad examples that I could use of my wife. I could plenty, point out plenty of my shortcomings in there, and I think I do that from time to time. But this one's a, this one's a simple one. It's a relatively easy one. Um, but it's, uh, I have this tendency. I know no other male on the planet has this tendency, by the way, but I have this tendency to leave my clothes laying on the floor. Uh, Again, I know that makes me an anomaly. Nobody else goes through this, but I have a tendency to do that from time to time. And my wife's not a huge, huge fan of it. Uh, I have gotten better about it and, and she has gotten better about reacting to it the way that, that she needs to over the years. But I can't tell you how something that sounds relatively small can kind of spiral into something that's, that's really big. And so what, what would normally happen is, let's say I would leave my clothes on the floor and I would do it pretty regularly to the point where she'd look the other way, look the other way, and then finally she couldn't take it anymore. And, and, and she gets rightfully frustrated at me, okay? And so she comes to me and she says, she makes this statement, you always leave your clothes on the floor, okay? Now, here's what's going through my mind. My mind is remembering the one time six weeks ago where I picked up my clothes. And I'm going to say, I don't always leave my clothes on the floor. I picked them up six weeks ago. And then she's going to say, well, I didn't mean always. And I'm going to say, well, that's what you said. And she's going to say, well, you say a lot of things you don't mean to. And then boom, we're off to the races, right? Three hours later, if somebody gave us a million dollars, we'd never be able to tell you what started the argument. Because we really weren't dealing with the thing behind the thing. I always looked at that as just some mild irritant. In other words, on my list of things to do, picking up my clothes was like number 100. 
on Kimberly's list of things that were really important, it was probably in the top 10. Now, even now when I'm better about it, it's, it's still, it's still hundred, 100 to me. That hasn't changed. What has changed is I understand now what that does to her, what, what, how she's interpreting that, that it shows a lack of caring, which is the last thing I wanted to show. I never, I never thought of it in that term. It never crossed my mind. So one of the biggest mistakes that we can make when we're engaging in these kinds of things is to make catastrophic statements like you always and you never, because then we're going to end up talking. It's like a volcano, right? You look at volcanoes, the most violent, visible, noisy part of the volcano is the eruption. But that's not where the problem is. If you could somehow magically cap that volcano and stop that eruption, it would just come out somewhere else. Why? Because the real issue is way down underneath where nobody's paying any attention to it. So one of the things that I would constantly be telling people is don't worry about the eruptions. Let's find out what's really, really driving this. And, and that was a big deal for a lot of people. When they come, came to understand that they were, you know, they were, it was one eruption here and one eruption here and there's a cycle, right? You have the big blowout, things get better things get a little iffy. It starts to, it starts to escalate. We have another blowout. People couldn't understand because they weren't dealing with the real problem. They were only dealing with the eruptions. They weren't dealing with the thing behind the thing. And one of the ways that we can avoid doing things like that is not making catastrophic statements, not ascribing negative, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Negative motives to something that our spouses has happened to be doing. And, and, uh, and we did, when we do the, the, the marriage retreat, even now we do them now, I spend a lot of time talking about that. How in the world are we going to be able to have uh, uh, some, some level of, of understanding our conflict if we don't give each other a break. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume your spouse is saying the worst thing that you could possibly be interpreting here because here's the, here's the interesting thing that I have found over the years is that when we're talking to one another, especially as spouses, when we're talking with one another, um, if we don't understand completely what the other person is saying, if we don't understand the ramifications, if we don't understand the presuppositions or what's driving that conversation, we have what I call a gap in the information, okay? We might know what something is, but we might not, we probably don't know why it's happening. And so if we have a gap in the information, being the human beings that we are, if we have a gap in the information, we are going to fill it with the worst possible scenario, that's just who we are. You know, if, if Kimberly is out somewhere and she says she's going to be home by seven o'clock and it's eight 30 and I can't get a hold of her. She hasn't called me. I hadn't called her or tried to call her, but can't get an answer. What's the first logical conclusion I'm going to come to. She's dead. She obviously is dead. That's the only conclusion I can possibly come to. She's dead on the side of the road. Uh, she's having an affair. She's what anything, any number of things that we can do to fill in that gap in the information with the worst possible scenario. We're going to do that. And so one of the things that I try my very hardest to be able to communicate to people because I've had to communicate it to myself and Kimberly and I have talked about this lots of times is that when you do have that level of conflict and somebody does say something that could be interpreted as something bad, but might not necessarily be something bad or you don't understand the motivation behind what's saying it, don't automatically assume the worst of your spouse. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's really difficult to do when we're in the midst of an emotional um, engagement for lack of a better word yeah we had a a situation several months ago and it was that same thing like where is he (laughs) you know and i i do that too oh no he's in a car accident we all do we all go we all go to the matter of fact i used to do i do still do that in the in the retreats i'll i'll give that scenario 
actually, I used the one with my daughter when, when our daughter, who, who uh, is um, now married in, in a different spot, but you know, she was supposed to be home at a certain time, and she wasn't, and we couldn't get her um, to answer the phone, and, and she was way late. And so I asked uh, everybody, I, I, I asked this question all the time, ask everybody who was there, so what's going through my mind? She's dead. She's car's broken down. She's, I mean, it goes forever before somebody finally says, you know, maybe, maybe there's just something wrong with her phone, which is, which is what ended up, ended up being the case. Um, but when we have a tendency, when we, when we have that gap in the information, it's just a human nature to make it the worst possible thing we can possibly think of. And, and we've got to be more intentional about making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, and I just, I wanted to just add, we're not going to be able to get to all the steps, so everyone has to go buy the book so they can read yes, the rest of them just absolutely. because of time. But, uh, you know, I think, too, what happens in some of those conflict, uh, you actually, the example that you gave about you leaving your clothes on the floor is, is mm. um, one you have in the book. So that's the sort of practical things that are that are in the book. But I think what tends to happen is it's so easy to be like, I'm not going to be the one to stop saying these things or yes. thinking the worst about you. Um, yeah. You be, you be the first one to do it. You, you be more like Jesus and then I'll yes. follow a long suit, you know? Yeah. And it, there's, there's times where I've, you know, in my marriage in our 23 some odd years where I would say, okay, I need to have grace right yeah. now. Like grace is so important. Even yes. if my, and, and the other thing I did too was did my husband really intentionally do something? Like, did he intentionally leave his clothes on the ground to annoy yes. me? Yeah. Or am I just annoyed, you know, yeah. and thinking it, just taking a minute, I think, to think through the, the being slow to speak. Yes. Because the minute you start becoming angry, and I mean really angry, your body starts going through physiological changes. And when those things start happening, you th you're thinking less well than you did before. And so I think just that one moment of just taking a, taking a break, taking a step back, taking a deep breath, and, and going forward with that, I think makes all the difference in the world. I think you're exactly right. Being able, and we so desperately need grace. And what's so funny about this is that we will we will ascribe the worst motivations to our spouse over, over things that could really go either way. They really may not be something that somebody did on purpose, as you were mentioning a second ago. But yet, if it came to almost a perfect stranger, we would actually show more grace to them. If they did something that was harmful to us, we might even think, I've done that before. They must be having a bad day. We don't really know what kind of bad day they, uh, they're having. Uh, you know, that's why they were being rude. Then I go home, my wife's rude to me. It's like, what are you doing? You know, why are you doing that to me? Why are you treating me this way? It's really fascinating that we, the people that sometimes we are often closest to, especially in a marriage relationship, get less of the benefit of the doubt. You know, my grandparents were married a few months shy of 70 years when mm. um, my grandma died and went to be with the Lord, and they spent their whole marriage in ministry. But a couple of years before, uh, before they, they died eight months apart, actually. Mm. So a couple of years before they died, my grandma told me a story. She said, you know, when we were about in our 30s sometime, we, our marriage was not good, mm. and we were treating one another horribly. Now, this couple, they, they have been the biggest inspiration in my life of what a good marriage looks like. But she's wow. telling me years ago in their 30s, they had a season that it was not good. And, and they sat down and they said, we are treating each other horribly, and that's not okay. And she mm. said they made a commitment to one another that they would treat one another with more honor than they would treat the best guest in their home. Mm. Because we do. We treat other people better often. And she said they, they committed to that. Now, they would sometimes, you know, fall off the wagon and oh, not, sure, not sure. do it. But she said, she, and she said to me, who think of anyone in the world that would be 
the most amazing guest in your home that you would show honor to? You know, she said, just think like the president or some just important person. Now go show your husband that much honor. Yeah, that's a, that's a great practical. That, that's one of the things that I wanted this, this book to be, uh, especially um, probably more than anything else other than biblical. I, I obviously wanted to start that way and, and get that part right. Uh, that was the most important to be theologically, doctrinally right uh, about that. But to, to, for it to be practical, for people to be able to look at it and, and not see, again, that this is some, another one of these 10-step things to a better marriage because there's no such thing, uh, but, but a barometer. What, what, are, what, are, what is the thing behind the thing? That's, that's kind of the whole idea with the marriage period. What's going on behind the scenes that is driving um, uh, my actions, that's driving my thoughts, that's driving my uh, interaction with my spouse. And so that's really what I wanted to do more than anything else. And, and it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun writing it after all these years of, of teaching it and, and engaging with it. Um, and uh, even now with, with, with our ministry growth project, we, uh, we, uh, are, we do uh, marriage retreats uh, based in, at least in part on the marriage period. We have other things too. Uh, and so we, I'm just having a blast with it. It's a lot of fun. You, you know, I, I wanted to just say about the book, this, this book is different than some marriage books. Like you said, it's not, you know, 10 steps to this, but what this book really is about is building a strong foundation for a good marriage. Yeah. And that the, those other things will follow behind. Yeah. Um, dealing well with conflict when you, when you're loving one another and when you're protecting one another and, and, um, that sort of thing. Now I do want to tell our listeners, and I'm going to link this in the episode notes. I'll link where you can buy the book, but also Danny has two podcasts and one of them is growth project radio. And one of, one of them is five minutes of truth with Danny Purvis. So I'm going to link both of those in the episode notes. So if you want to check him out and they discuss all different sorts of things, it's not a marriage podcast per se, but they just discuss all sorts of things. All kind of cool stuff. Yeah. And, and really I should probably add an approximately to the five minutes of truth. I right? know. I know. <laughs> it's never really quite five minutes. So, so if you just, if you just sort of mentally put in approximately five minutes of truth, then I think I think you'll, it's it's a more accurate title than what uh, than what we have. We we started out at five minutes, and it was just a little tough getting that all in there. Yeah, well, some of the topics you guys take up, it would be hard to get it in five five minutes. But for a sh- for a short little podcast, I think it, it's great, and I'm glad you yeah, guys are a little really flexible cool. with it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Colleen. Thank you. Uh, I I, uh, I appreciate it more than you can possibly imagine. I love, like I said, I love what you guys are doing, and uh, uh, praying for you guys all the time. And uh, if there's ever anything we can do for you, um, just just give us a holler. We, we, it was it's an honor being on with you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>